from Relay FM, it's Upgrade, episode number 21. Today's episode of Upgrade is brought to you by lynda.com, where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by industry experts. For a 10-day free trial, visit lynda.com slash upgrade. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. MailRoute, a secure hosted email service for protection from viruses and spam. And stamps.com, postage on demand. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined, as always, by the one and only Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Mike. How's it going? I'm good, Power Slider. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I, I did. Uh, I sent you guys a picture of me listening to Connected uh, while driving past one infinite loop in Cupertino last week. That was just for you. It was that was old school, kicking it old school. I was power sliding uh, through the loop, as we do. <laughs> it's the only way to roll. Yeah. So we have a big show today. Big show, we lots have, of stuff. We have lots of, uh, I'm looking at the document right now, and we have like uh, a whole series worth of follow-up. Yeah. Um, but we have a little special thing that we're going to do. At, at the end. At the end today. Mm-hmm. So la- last week, I'll, t- I'll tease it for now. Last week, um, we were talking about the Holocaust cloak. Yes. Uh which is a reference to The Princess Bride. Indeed. And then you were horrified to find out that I have not seen The Princess Bride. So right. I watched The Princess Bride mm-hmm. yesterday, and we're going to talk about it today. Yes. So stay tuned till the end mm-hmm. if you want to hear that. So should we kick it off with some, some good old-fashioned follow-up? Yeah, let's do the follow-up. Um, I had one quick bit of follow-up uh, from Lister Michael about, um, about Marco Marketing. Um, which is from a couple of shows ago, but I, I, I wanted to I wanted to pass this along because the, the idea here is, you know, yes, Marco is uh, Marco Ahmed is high profile, but he's also putting himself out there and and becoming high profile. And I think the argument I made was that 21st century marketing that's that's part of the deal. That's not a that's not cheating. That's part of the deal. So listener Michael wrote in and said, I'm in the process of changing jobs for the second time in almost exactly a year. I'm going from a pretty good to a great one, and I can partly lay that on the fact that I was willing to do something in public and be a professional about it. I'm an iOS developer, and most of the openings understandably want to see candidates who have an app they can point to in the app store to even be considered. I don't really get to do that because I used to work for the government making interactive training and the job I'm just winding down is an enterprise app for sales reps and managers. In theory, I could make an app in my free time, but trying to put the effort to make an app that I consider worth releasing is daunting. So last year, I set writing at least one blog post a week in a professional voice and stuck with it. I'm nearing almost a full year of posts without missing a week now, and it's lucky to break 20 page views on a good week. Some weeks it feels like pulling teeth to write anything. Other weeks it goes well. The thing that amazed me is when I decided to apply to a handful of the very best iOS developer shops in my area right around the one year mark of starting my new job, both because I wanted a change of culture from my current job, and to see if I was good enough, I got an interview at my number one choice, which I had gotten a form letter rejection from a year ago. In the interview, three of the four interviewers mentioned checking my blog, which I put on my resume under contact info and in a positive light as they had skimmed it over before the interview to get a feel for me. Even more surprisingly, one of them skipped the technical portion of the interview because of it and instead focused much more on the cultural process section. The blog, the blog probably isn't the whole story. Not being a relocation hire probably made me a lot more appealing and I've done a whole lot of professional development in the last year, but I'm convinced it helped get me in the door. So yeah, being willing to put yourself out there has value, even if you're not remotely popular. Listener Michael, thank you. I just thought that was a great story. Um, I think that, like, I, I enjoy reading this as well because um, it's a good. I think it's good to show these days that you have the ability to to do other things. You know. Yeah, yeah, and, and that you're serious about. It. I mean, this is. I think we might have talked about this on an earlier show. I know I've talked about it on a podcast somewhere. 
that um, when I hired somebody, when I would interview people at IDG, for especially for junior editor jobs, I would ask them about things like their if they were straight out of college or recently out of college, what they did in college in terms of writing and editing, and um, you know. It was a check to see how committed they were to this as a as a profession. And if they said, well, you know, I wrote papers for my English classes, I was much less impressed than if they said, oh, well, I worked on the student newspaper and I started this online journal and I did this other thing. Because that's a sign. That's a sign that this is somebody who takes this, this, uh, this area, this business, this profession seriously. And I think listener Michael is... Uh, is doing that here, where he's he's saying, you know, he's not even raising his profile necessarily as he's putting himself out there and demonstrating his commitment. And I think that's a, uh, I think that's a big, I think that's a big deal. And I think it's something people look for in interviews. Is it's it's that that checks a box. That's like, oh, this person is serious about about this. Has something to 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 commend themselves. I think it's a, uh, I think it's uh, very valuable if you're trying to hire somebody to look at something like that. My brother is in university, um, and he would like to to do journalism one day. That's kind of that's what he's interested in, uh, and he's really interested in sports journalism. So he's done some stuff like he he wrote for a couple of websites. Um, but I'm always really really pushing him to have his own blog because whenever he applies for internships or, or any kind of like small position somewhere or writing programs, they all just want to see examples of his work and the best place to do that is to, is to just have a blog and it's like what i kind of take it back to how i got started doing this stuff i just had a podcast that i did every week and i showed up every week and just got better over time and you can kind of practice in obscurity um mm-hmm. in a way because it's it's very rare that like you you'll put something onto the internet and all of a sudden all of the internet find out about it on day one but it allows you to kind of to hone your skills and to like to practice so if you have any sort of interest in anything technology related, just if, I'm assuming that you like it. If you want to have a job in it or anything, you know, any anything that you're interested in, if you want a job in a certain field that is a passion of yours, you know, get a blog about it and write about it or do a podcast about it. Yeah, show, showing passion for uh, the subject that is also what you want to have be your profession is generally a really good sign. It's a good sign for people who are hiring you, and it's a good sign for people who want to, you know who are colleagues or potential future colleagues that oh this is somebody who's got enthusiasm and wants to talk about this stuff, and it makes a difference. And it's not necessarily a calculation of like score them from one to ten on enthusiasm, uh, but it it just it's. The fact is that most of the other people in that industry are enthusiastic about that too, and seeing your enthusiasm about it can um, it makes a, it makes a connection too. So yeah, I thought anyway. I thought it was really great, great feedback, and it's I, I it was a hole that I didn't expect this podcast to go down, but it's actually been kind of a very interesting place to go. This idea that in in this modern era that there's a there there's a perception of um, yeah of of what what deserved success looks like (laughs) and uh then we throw a lot of things away that are actually a huge part of whether something is succeeding or failing and you can't ignore it and this was just another example of something this is a site that nobody read but the people who needed to read it read it and it made a difference and that's cool it's good to know i'm I'm going to be a good brother jason and put my brothers uh i'm going to put his his uh site in the show notes today Mm. Good for you. Scores scoring some some good brotherly love points there. I think. Well done. So that, let's move on. What else do we have today? 
Oh, so much feedback about pens and tablet computing. <laughs> Do you wish you'd never said anything? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Um, I, I thought that I think this gives me perspective. I, I will point out up front that when I brought up the subject, the very first thing I said is I hate pens and can't write and, you know, and don't like styluses because I don't like pens and pencils and writing things out longhand. I'm really bad at it. Um, my handwriting is illegible. I don't enjoy it. I would much rather type notes. Um, and so, but I did profess a skepticism from from seeing pen-based computing technologies in the past. And we had a really interesting spectrum of responses from people about their experience with um, with uh, with with pen input and tablet computers. So I'm, I'm going to run I'm going to run a bunch of it down, um, really hopefully really quickly, but. Probably not. Okay, here we go. So listener Alec wrote in and said, uh, notability changed the game for him. Uh, b- beside the benefit of syncing with the cloud and audio recording, he said there were some key features, copy and paste, not just for text, but for drawn figures. This is something that I think you might have mentioned briefly. This idea that that um, uh, if, you're, if you're taking notes on something that requires figures or that requires uh, little pictures, things like that, um, having that available and being able to kind of uh, copy and paste it. And it's not something you can type. You have to write, you have to write that down. Um, so, so we listed that. Colors. Um, didn't need multiple pens laying around on a small pull-out desk. Sorry, Mike, but I could change the color later if I wanted to. Uh, easier to tap a swatch and change the color than physically drop and regrip a new pen. Um, hey, dude, I missed class. Can you send me the notes? Share sheet. Boom. That's that's good. And uh, he said, notability subtly tweaks your strokes, and I found that made my handwriting and figures look better. So I thought that was interesting. Notability app. Uh, listener Troy wrote in to say, for most undergraduate students, tech needs are driven by two things, cost and reliability, and it's going to be a long time before any type of digital note-taking technology beats pen and paper on either of those. By far the most common note-taking technology used in my classes is pen and paper. That said, I see students take notes on just about every sort of device except pen input tablet. I've actually seen students two-thumb type notes on a phone, something I wouldn't have thought possible. Those students are going to fail, by the way. <laughs> you think? I can type pretty quickly. No, they're probably fine. I just That was my initial thought, was the, they're not the best students, but they are trying to get something down on their phone um no it may be and that, that's I, I like listener troy's point here which is um you know he thought it impossible but hey if it works for them then then that's great so here's my question to you yeah would you think that someone would fail if they were typing on a keyboard on a laptop in their notes no my my concern is just that i mean we we, we don't have any judgment here uh about how good these students are i i if they could either be great phone typers or they could be people who just like couldn't find their pen and need to take a couple notes but it's not very good if i was taking notes on a phone i that would be bad but they could also be just geniuses who uh are great at at taking notes on the phone and that that could be just a, a purely generational shift um i feel way faster on the iphone like i feel it whether i am or not like i feel like i'm a faster typer on the iphone than i am on the on the Mac. Wow. I should do some sort of test. I don't I even understand. I can't even understand what you're saying, Mike. Are you speaking English anymore? Have you lapsed into some... Are the words you're using not words that I <laughs> understand? Is this... Uh, has the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean separated us again? Oh, no. Okay. Um, 
Listener Troy goes on to say, I see a variety of Mac and Windows laptops, uh, occasional iPad, a handful of Surface devices. I've seen some LiveScribe pens. LiveScribe is that thing that records audio and, you know, but he asked students if they use the audio and they say they thought they would, but they never do. Uh, but here's the here's the key point from Listener Troy. If I can go all professory on you for a bit, most of the time the tech gets in the way. The purpose of class notes is to provide something for your memory to latch onto so you can remember the material, not to produce a verbatim transcript. On a side for me, Jason, um, that we used to have a lecture note service when I was in college, and the the, the whole and and sometimes what they'll do is um, even now is. Uh, Sometimes professors will record their lectures and post them as podcasts. And the idea is, you know, if verbatim, <laughs> don't do a lot of work to generate the verbatim. It's like trying to do a verbatim transcript of an Apple event. It's like, you know what? They're going to post the video. You can get the verbatim transcript later. Take the take the important notes. Get the highlights here. And this is what he's saying is, you know, verbatim tra- transcript is not the the objective. The key he goes on to say, is to have as close to a friction-free environment for that as you can. Note-taking is as much about the process as it is the result. Having to quickly summarize the material and reshape it in a way that makes sense to the note-taker is a large part of it. For people like Jason, who type, that's me, 100 words per minute, that probably means a laptop with a good keyboard. For a majority of my students, the note-taking method with the least friction and least distraction from the task at hand is still pen and paper, and I don't see that changing for many years yet. Listener Troy. So thank you for that. I would say, actually, as as a college student, I was not, um, even when I got a laptop in grad school, um, typing to take notes was not something that I did. And the only time I type to take notes now and and type quickly is when I am trying to get quotes down. Because if, um, if I'm doing an interview or something like that, where there is no transcript and I need to get the direct quotes, I will type because I can, I can type down what they're saying really fast. But in general, I prefer much shorter notes. Like Troy says, I'm really trying to hit the highlights and give myself uh, and give my memory, like he says, something to latch on to. And uh, and and I, I there's other feedback we got, uh, not all of it um, in our document here, that was very similar, which is, you know, the point the point to having notes is more um, a process that leads to you pondering the information and filtering it and attaching it. And it's part of the learning process, not, you know, you're not a court recorder, you're not writing down a, a transcript of everything that's said. Listener Gary uh, wrote in to say, regarding note-taking on the iPad, I prefer it over pen and paper for the same reason I prefer reading books on the iPad. I can have all my notes with me. I can have other documents that I need for a meeting on the iPad and mark them up with notes. So that's a fair point. I think the interesting thing about this feedback, and we do have some more, is how much we received. I so was much. surprised how much came through. So uh, much. I I have strong topics, uh, strong feelings about this topic, and I think you do too. But it didn't necessarily mean for me that I thought we were going to get <laughs> yeah. this much feedback about it. Just because we Wrong. have opinions doesn't mean that anyone else cares exactly. at all about what we care about. I think I think of all of the things we've spoken about, this may be by word count the most feedback we've ever received. <laughs> Lots of long emails yeah. about this. Yeah, not handwritten. I'll point out. They should be. Well, we're waiting. You know, post takes a little bit, yeah. mm-hmm. a little bit longer than, than emails, so we're we're waiting for the handwritten stuff to come through. Yeah. Um, we do have uh, a sponsor break. I would like to take now, Jason, if that is okay, before we continue the rest of the follow up for today. All right, epic follow up. You know, it's epic when there's a sponsor break in the middle of it. 
It's already February. What are you waiting for? Invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com. We have a 10-day free trial for listeners of Upgrade. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, and so much more. Whether you want to set new financial goals, invest in a new hobby, or improve upon some current skills for your personal life or for your job, lynda.com has something for you. You'll get unlimited access to every single course that they have. You can view these on your tablet, your mobile device with their apps for iOS and Android. And of course, you can look at them on the desktop and they have searchable transcripts and they have different speed settings you can play for the videos as well if you want to learn super fast at lynda.com. You can do that. Maybe you want to learn a little bit about marketing online to help with your business or website, which goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier. You know, you want to improve some skills in something that you love and you set up a blog. These guys at lynda.com, they can help you out with that. They can help you think about how to present yourself a little bit differently. You know, And then when you want to build your own app as well, they have courses on Swift. They have courses on iOS app development. They even have courses on Android development too, if that's something that you're interested in. Invest in yourself today and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash upgrade. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash upgrade. Go ahead. I challenge you to learn something new. Thank you so much to lynda.com for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. All right. Again, not handwritten. This comes from a good, good friend of the show. It's Upgradian Tony. This is Tony Sindelar from various incomparable podcasts. Um, this is not about Dungeons and Dragons, though. Uh, Tony's in academia. He says, I would say that students have overwhelmingly moved to doing note-taking electronically, whether typed on a laptop or inked on a tablet, just as faculty have overwhelmingly moved from chalk talk to PowerPoint. Uh, inking with an iPad or Surface does have a lot of advantages for note-taking, especially diagrams, symbols, concept mapping, but we still aren't there yet in terms of ease of use of the tools. So I guess I agree with Jason's skepticism. People in education have been hoping for crazy new improvements that will fix everything, but it keeps not being here regardless of the latest vendor trying to push something. I remember a pre-iPad era associate provost lobbying for all first-year students at a large state school to be required to buy one of those clunky, expensive Windows XP-based tablets. So... Uh, Tony, interesting points because he's saying electronic uh, note-taking is predominant now, but um, but that he's skeptical about um, about whether the tools are just good enough yet, which is sort of where I am. Is I, I don't dispute that this could be great. I just am a little bit skeptical about whether people who are writing and saying, oh, yes, I use digital link for note-taking, whether they're doing that despite it being clunky or um, because it's just not, it's just super awesome and I need to get a rush out and get a, a stylus and start writing everything. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. <laughs> this makes me think of that Surface Hub, you know, like the digital kind of note-taking type thing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's like that sort of idea, right? Every Everything's better if it's on a screen instead. Um, but none of these things have really caught on. I remember... Um, in school, we had uh, smart boards, they were called, uh, where basically pe- like the teachers could, um, they they were kind of like projected screens. It was weird. It was like it was a whiteboard, but they would write on them with these pens that didn't actually write on the board. Oh, yeah. Just created something that was projected onto them. But, but very often the projector was turned off and they just used the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had one, we had one that was, um, 
it was a real whiteboard, but you used these pens with special little stickers on them. And the idea was that it was recording everything that was written up on the white whiteboard and you could play that back later. But yeah, it didn't. I don't know. I mean, the, the world, this is one of the reasons why I think I bring more skepticism to this than a lot of the listeners is because I've been in this, um, I've been, in, this is one of those areas where my, my, I've lost my childlike enthusiasm for technology <laughs> that I, I, that I keep in other areas. I have lots of areas where I'm very enthusiastic about new technology. This is one of those where I've been disappointed so many times, um, that I, I now have, I, I view it much more cynically that I, I can't tell you it's been like 15 or 20 years that people have been saying, we're going to change how people take notes. And I just, I remain quite skeptical that it's good enough. Not that it doesn't have advantages, but that is it good enough? Is it, and maybe that's, and we were originally talking about Apple doing a stylus. I mean, maybe that is what, you know, Apple is trying to do here is can we make something that's, that is good enough for Apple standards? Because boy, if Apple comes out with a stylus and it's, and it's lame, then that's not good. So um, I have two more pieces of feedback here about this issue that I want to get to because so many people wrote in. Listener Dave, Writes in, my previous two laptops were Windows tablets. Much of my work involves being on site with clients in their environments. I'm mostly on the normal work floor rather than in meetings. When you're sitting next to someone's desk, I find writing notes much easier than typing. You can sit in what is, for me, a much more natural position. You can also make notes standing up. As Mike said, the notes are automatically backed up. My tool of choice was OneNote, synced via Dropbox. There. For I have all my notes instantly accessible. My handwriting's pretty awful. Yay, me too. But it's important to remember software to understand handwriting has a much easier job when it knows the strokes you used, as opposed to trying to OCR a random scrawl. This is a really good point. From my initial use in 2004, the recognition was very impressive and improved with new Windows versions. I never formally converted my notes. OneNote just made them searchable. Combined with OneNote's fuzzy searching, it was very rare for searches to fail. In fact, it felt like it was sometimes better at reading my handwriting than I was. I thought that was... Good feedback. That's some positive words about Windows uh, Windows tablets. And finally on this topic, Upgrader Darcy wrote in and said, I really enjoy the show, especially when you two disagree. <laughs> in that vein, allow me to take issue with something that Mike said. <laughs> um, I deleted all feedback that disagreed with me. So um, every feature that people think they need, whether they need it or not, that if they think they need it and then Microsoft's doing it, that's a potential sale that you lose to Microsoft. This is something that you said on the last show. I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. And what Darcy says is, isn't this the opposite of what made Apple so successful? Apple's products are typically, typically less feature-rich than its competitors. Instead, Apple focuses on certain core functionality, making the product as easy and as enjoyable to use as possible. Darcy goes on, I've been an Apple user since 96 and have been with the company through the darkest times. That's true. I can verify that. While I'm elated that Apple's been so successful, I'm terrified its success will cause the company to lose focus and to try to fill every product niche imaginable. I'm not saying that a stylus is necessarily a bad idea. It may be part of a focused, well-thought-out strategy for the iPad, but focus is key, and it is so easily lost when a company continually breaks its own sales records quarter after quarter. Okay, that doesn't apply to recent iPad sales, but still. In this, I am in complete agreement with Steve... Steve who? Oh, Steve Jobs. Right. When he said, innovation is saying no to a thousand things. In light of the recent Apple is losing the functional high ground discussion. Hi, Marco. It is perhaps more important than ever that Apple focus on core functionality and making sure it's hard earned. It just works. Reputation isn't tarnished any further. Any thoughts about that? About how wrong you were, Mike? Any apologies to Upgrader Darcy? Yes, because I don't think I am wrong. Um, (laughs) So my feeling on this is I agree that 
that is how Apple was. I don't think it's where or Apple will be like into the future. I think that Apple are trying to attract different markets now. They have a lot more of a focus on uh, the Asian markets than they did before, which is probably a really good reason for why the iPhones got bigger. And I think it's if they do a stylus, I think that's another reason for why they've they've done that. I I do believe that if well if Apple wants to grow, they have to start doing things like this. They have to like they have to start going for the features that other people have to attract the other customers. And I just see that that is a a path that they may take. I agree, it's not the one that they have had before, but I think it's the one that they could start to take going forward. That's my my own personal opinion. All right, uh, my punditry. I guess I I don't think either of these approaches is um is wrong. I think what I would say is um Apple Apple is trying to reach different markets. That that's absolutely true. I do feel like that that Apple look, if if all Apple was concerned about was checking uh, a feature box on on a, in a in a list of features, then they would have had a, an Apple stylus available for phone and tablet years ago. Mhm. So there is a there is a, a a line that Apple needs to cross, a bar they need to clear. That is, you know, we've got a story with this that it's good enough for us. It it, it meets our. I don't mean a good enough in a negative way. I mean like it meets our standards. Below this point, we can't ship it. Um, that that bar may change depending on the market, um, but I do think it is is there, and I think that's sort of what Darcy is saying here. Is um, yeah, that makes sense. Is is it needs to. You can't just throw a pen out there because other people have pens, and they haven't, right? They Samsung has been waving that stylus in Apple's face for years now, and Apple's done nothing. Yeah, it's a, it's like taunting them. Look at the stylus; the S Pen is here, woo! Uh, and nothing. Uh, so when if if Apple does come out with something, that will be an interesting moment because what they're saying is now we've got a story to tell. Now we've got a product that meets our standards, and what's that going to be? And the software and the hardware need to be good enough to 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 make that something, because otherwise, if it's good enough now, if everything is good enough now, then why doesn't Apple have that product? I think that's the argument: is is it may be good enough for some people now, but it seems to not be good enough for Apple, because Apple is content to not upgrade their digitizer and not come out with its own pen that kicks all the other pens out of the market. Uh, so what what makes that change? And what's the thing that pushes them to do that? And maybe it's just to find a reason for an iPad Pro uh, for being. Maybe it's just we we need reasons why we would we would sell this thing. But um, that's troubling in its own way. If that's the case, I don't know. I, but I, I I think uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I this is one of those things that's very it, it, the answer to this. What happens here will give us an interesting data point on where Apple is right now in terms of its product philosophy. Uh, in 2015, if if it does this, that'll be fascinating to see. And I I will try some note taking app at some point here against my you know better judgment because I don't like pens just to get a better idea of what the current experience is like. At least on the iPad, I don't have a a surface to to try out. But all right, that's follow up. Yay! Time for follow out. Time for some follow out. We should we should mention hashtag Ask Upgrade on Twitter. Uh, you can you can go to Relay FM and and uh, send feedback via the feedback form. That works yep. too. Uh, and you can be a part of follow up. We love to hear from you. Follow out. I just wanted to mention Connected Twenty Four this week. 
Um, this was this was your big, and I mean big. It's like three hours long podcast where you break down the iPad launch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a uh, quite an undertaking. Uh, we people may have been familiar with the prompt episode thirty where we did this for mm. the iPhone. Um, the the difference being uh, from a production perspective, this time we went back a bit further as well, and we looked at the run up to the iPad's introduction. Yeah, a lot of research. Yeah, Federico did some incredible research, and 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 he took a look at kind of what the rumors were like leading up. Um, and so we did that. Then we did like the play by play breakdown of the iPad introduction and spoke about how we feel about the iPad. So it was a lot of fun and we really enjoyed it. So. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it. I, I listened to that on my drive down and, and to Cupertino and back last week. I was just visiting a friend, nothing nothing secret, just visiting a friend. Um, I've got I've got I've got more friends at Apple these days because some of my former colleagues work are doing work at Apple now. So, but I can say no more. Um, it's not that exciting. It's just uh, it's nice to go down there and, and visit with uh, with pals, um, who are inside the rainbow curtain now. <laughs> um, that's not a phrase. The, I, I wanted, like it though. <clears throat> I wanted to mention um, this mostly because I wanted to tell a story about when I went to the iPad event and. Um, and related to our note taking thing, I, I, uh, you know, I think Dan Morin was live blogging it, and I was, uh, or maybe I was live blogging it. Anyway, you you do that, and when you're covering it that intensely, you kind of miss, you miss seeing it. You miss the, you lose the, uh, uh, you you lose the big picture. You don't see the forest for the trees when you're covering an event like that. So I will often watch an event video afterward. So the later that day or maybe the next day I'm home um, and I'm watching on my Apple TV, I am watching uh, the iPad launch uh, on the TV. And um, I don't realize that my son, who was five at the time, is behind the couch and is, is transfixed by this. And it's a fond memory for me now because he was... He was exposed to the untempered reality distortion field, and I had that moment where I was like, "Oh my God, he's been inside the RDF," because you know he he doesn't he doesn't usually see TV commercials. He doesn't know, and now he's got Apple event Steve Jobs just talking to him about how great the iPad is, and it totally worked because for the next whatever four months he would not stop talking about how we needed an iPad. He's like, "We need an iPad. We have to have an iPad." This five-year-old kid. We have to have an iPad. It does this. It does this. Is the iPad out yet? When are we going to get an iPad? We have to get an iPad. And it was amazing how powerful that that uh, event was. Whatever you know, thirty-minute chunk of it he saw was to him because he was completely enthralled and then could not stop talking about the iPad. And you know, flash forward ten years, and his uh, his favorite device is in fact an iPad, and he uses it all the time. So you know, he's an iPad kid. Thanks, Steve. I love that. I mean, that he he was caught up in it. I feel like I, I was caught up in it as well. Like I mentioned on the show, I was watching the I was watching Steve do the intro. I was like, I should I should buy an iPad Air too. Yeah. It'd be so amazing to read the New York Times. And then I was able to break out of it not too long after, thankfully. But it will get you. It it's dangerous. You. It's, it's very dangerous. Right, we have we have completed follow up and out. Um, and we do have a couple of topics today. Yes. So uh, why, don't, why don't we take a quick break here and jump right in. This episode 
of Upgrade is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code UPGRADE at checkout. When it comes to giving yourself a place online, there is nowhere better than Squarespace, whether you're me, you, or Jeff Bridges. Squarespace have made an incredible ad campaign for the Super Bowl, which I'm sure many of you would have seen uh, during the Super Bowl features. The one and only Mr. Jeff Bridges. Super Bowl! Uh, he- Super Bowl, indeed. Uh, Jeff made a sleeping tape in collaboration with Squarespace. So it's basically it's like an album of music uh, to help you sleep and dream. Uh, Mr. Bridges is all about the dreaming. They've made some really great videos, like they've made the ad, but there's also some of the videos of Jeff in a forest uh, with a boom mic uh, and then sitting down in front of a MacBook to actually create your Squarespace website. Um, and of course, Squarespace have built a really great site to go along with this, which you can find at dreamingwithjeff.com. And I wanted to bring this up because it is a great example of everything you can do with Squarespace. If you go to dreamingwithjeff.com, you'll see a great website that looks good on loads of different devices, all the devices that you have, because it features responsive web design. It has an inbuilt music player, so you can listen to the album right there. You can buy the album using the commerce platform. And it, it basically just gives a really great overview of what you will get with Squarespace. So go to dreamingwithjeff.com. You can check it out. They're they're giving away all the proceeds of people that buy the album to charity, and it just shows how great a Squarespace website can be. Go check it out, but you should sign up for Squarespace. They have 24-7 customer support. They have a great commerce platform. They have rock-solid fast hosting and so much more. If you want a website on the internet, Squarespace should be what you check out first. Go sign up for a free trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code UPGRADE to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. Thank you so much to Squarespace for the support of all of Real FM, Squarespace. Start here, go anywhere. A website on the internet, you said. I would, I have created a website on my computer that is not on the internet, and here's the address. Macintosh HD slash sites slash Jason's cool website slash cool website page one underscore is this file period uh, spelled, out, spelled out period <laughs> dot HTML. That sounds really good. I look forward to uh, visiting visiting that. Yeah, check it out. It's not on the internet, but you can get to it on my hard drive. So I'll, I'll be right over. Okay, good. <sighs> we have topics now. We should put a thing at the at the beginning of the show that says, <laughs> if you would like to skip the follow-up, please advance to 30 minutes in. We could make it like one of those text-based adventure games. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you need to know the cheat code to get to the... So here's the thing. I, I um, One of the reasons I'm excited about doing this show every week is the follow-up. I've, I've thought a lot about the, the problems of doing... I think it's an advantage of these sequential shows, shows that, that people listen to every week, is that um, it's telling an ongoing story, and, and the, the follow-up is... Uh, not only does that allow the listeners to interact, but it also means that, like, sort of... There, there are these echoes that move through the episodes that, that as you listen to them, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that, and they said this, and it all kind of builds. And I think that's great. I think one of the challenges with it is if you do 30 minutes of follow-up at the beginning of the show, this is, I think, hypercritical, I, I always felt this about, is I liked the follow-up, and yet I also felt like you go back and you want to listen to the TiVo episode of Hypercritical, but you got to go through 20 minutes of follow-up to get there, and it's follow-up from shows that you haven't listened to in, in ages, 
Um, so it does it, it 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 hurts on that. It's not like instantly accessible. You have to wait, uh, or you have to just go through follow up of things you haven't heard. And you know, we don't do any of the incomparable for a bunch of reasons. But I always thought the way you could do it is just stick it all at the end. Um, but the danger there is that then you never get to it. So I don't know. I don't know what the best uh, short of putting in chapter marks, Mike. And that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I like the I like the the chronology of having the follow up at the front because it's it's leading on from last time. Well, that like I said, that that before. that gives you for for. Um, regular listeners, I, I agree. I think that is the power of it. I think that's, like I said, that's why I was excited to do this show in this way is I listen to all these shows that have the follow-up at the beginning and I love the follow-up at the beginning and and the other shows that I do don't have it. So I, I like that part of it, but th- there's always that, um, the downside of it is that, you know, it's 30 minutes of talk before you, you know, th- it's not like follow-up isn't topics. It's just in a in a context uh, that uh, is lost if it's the first episode you listen to. I don't know. I I, I totally get that because it, it makes logical sense. But I've listened to shows. I've jumped into podcasts before and I've still drawn entertainment from listening to the follow-up. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but uh, I, I'm assuming that people... Well, I know people don't go right back to the start and listen all the way, but we do right. get new people every week, so... All right. Um, Rafola yeah, there, in thing. the chat room suggests a follow-up sandwich. So there's a term that we need to copyright immediately and steal from Rafola. Follow-up sandwich would be you start with a hot topic, and then you move to follow-up, and then you go on with the rest of the stories. I don't know. That that feels um, a little choppy too. I, there's no. That's that's the beauty of this this medium. This format is. Uh, uh, there's no right answer. There, <laughs> we could try try different things. Um, we moved ask upgrade to the end. So you know. Or, or or near the end. Anyway, the big topic this week is um, Apple's huge results last week. Yeah, they were huge. Uh, they were that was a crazy thing. The last Tuesday afternoon that that uh, Dan Morin and I were covering on Six Colors. Uh, you get to listen to Tim Cook talk. You get to listen to the uh, Luca, the CFO, talk about headwinds and foreign. Uh, financial transactions and hedging and things that I do not understand because they are business and finance things. But you get Tim Cook dropping little tidbits here and there about sort of, again, I love that stuff about why, you know, why does Apple, what's it thinking? What, what, why do they do what they do? What is their approach to this? And we got, and we got some of that. Um, there was a, there was a good uh, ask upgrade item that we put in here uh, from a, a listener whose name I did not translate. <laughs> Because <laughs> one of the problems with the Ask Upgrade is it just gives us the username. It's David. It's it's listener David uh, said, how does Apple produce 34,000 iPhones an hour and still be compl- supp- supply constrained and ship them around the world? Um, uh, it's a good question. I, I, uh, I Nine phones a second were sold in that three-month span. Nine iPhones a second. Magic and robots. It, and- it is hard. It is hard to imagine. I mean, it's just, it, I, I said this, um, I can't remember where I, where I said this. I think I said this somewhere, but um, but maybe not on this show. It, it gets to the point, maybe it was on Clockwise, it gets to the point where the numbers are hard to, to just for people to fathom. It's like the, the law of large numbers that we talk about 
is this idea that, I mean, and people misuse the term law of large numbers, but it's often used in terms of Apple in saying that at some point you're so big that you can't get, you can't grow much, you can't get much bigger because the number's just too big to begin with. This is sort of the argument about Facebook growth will eventually be constrained because they will run out of human beings. Um, I, I think, though, when we talk about large numbers with Apple, sometimes the problem is it's just hard for our brains to comprehend what it means that they made that many billions of dollars and sold that many iPhones. These are very large numbers. They're outside of the scope of of our, our day-to-day experience. Um, and when you look at the numbers, too, you see how huge the iPhone is, and it continues to be bigger. I mean, Apple is essentially iPhone Incorporated with a nice side business of computers and, and iPads and, that, and, and iTunes and Apple Pay. But those are all like little cute little side businesses that on their own would be big businesses. But the iPhone just dwarfs them and every other tech company in and maybe every other company in existence. It's hard to fathom. How do you think like how do you think Apple feel about having their company so iPhone heavy? And do you think that it is a or should be a concern to have one one product line out of their maybe five or six product lines drive that amount that that sort of percentage of revenue. It's a good problem to have. Um, I don't think anybody's going to turn down a product that is that successful and profitable. But I do think it's potentially distorting. Um, and I've been thinking about this with regard to the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch is a really interesting product, right? But there are lots of interesting products Apple could come up with. In fact, Apple's got some interesting products, not just the Mac and the iPad, but like the Apple TV. And they they say, well, we're looking at that. That's an area of interest. But what's the Apple Watch? (laughs) The Apple Watch is an iPhone accessory. It does not work without the iPhone. It is an iPhone accessory. And it may be very successful, as a really, really great iPhone accessory because we know, I mean, looking at the other smartwatches that are out there, the only one that really even works with the iPhone is the Pebble. And as a Pebble user, I can tell you it doesn't work that well. They are they are sort of, it works despite the OS's issues with the Pebble, not because of. Um, and so this thing is instantly going to be the, uh, not just a, a cool hard, piece of hardware and not just a fashion item, but it's going to be, um, the really the only way you would interact with a smartwatch and an iPhone because of that. It's not, it's not just Apple's uh, trademark hardware and software integration. It's their hardware, software, and accessory connectivity to other hardware and software. <laughs> it's this ecosystem integration on a, on a really, and not like ecosystem, like there's a Mac over there, but it's like there's a, a watch and a phone and they're connected together just perfectly seamlessly. Um, this is the kind of product you make when you have a product as huge as the iPhone. Is you you know the the Apple Watch is um is exactly what kind of a product a company makes when they are the iPhone company because it's an iPhone accessory. And I'm not saying that's not going to be a really interesting product, but it, it I, I was just thinking about it this weekend. It, it just it feels. If the iPhone was as successful as the iPad and the Mac, 
the Apple Watch wouldn't be a thing, I think, or it wouldn't be the thing that it is because you're only going to sell it to a certain percentage of the people who have iPhones. And so you need this giant number in order to justify making that product. But they've got the giant number. They've got the giant number. You know, what percentage of iPhone users need to buy an Apple Watch to make the Apple Watch bigger than the iPad and the Mac? There's a number, and it's probably not that big. <laughs> Maybe it's I mean, not saying they'll they'll get there, but they they could theoretically. Um, it seems like that the margins might be quite high. Like if if the rumored prices believed to be true, right? Because they're charging kind of like fashion accessory price lines. You know that the, is there is a potential. Maybe not initially because these things can be difficult to produce. But eventually, there could be at least some models of the Apple Watch where the the margins are quite good on it for Apple. Maybe. Yeah. It's it's uh, but that that is so uh, without putting a, a a value judgment on it. I just that I think the Apple Watch is a good example of what is probably a distortion from. Again, I'm I'm trying not to be negative about it. I'm I'm trying to say this is behavior that is is changed because the number that goes along with the iPhone is so huge. And the Apple TV is a different product, and it's relying on Apple's, you know, ecosystem. And yeah, iPhone is a part of that, but it's the iTunes ecosystem and Macs and iPads and other things. And if you're prioritizing, um, when the iPhone gets this big, I feel like, you know, it. Any math you do about what kind of product should you do next comes back to, well, yeah, but look at this iPhone. It's like, should we do more iPhones? Should we do things that we sell to iPhone users? Because even if you sell a small percentage of, you sell a product to a small percentage of those users, that number is just so large now that, um, you know, it, it's, I don't think this is ever going to happen, but I think it's it's worth just as a, an exercise, ask yourself, what would the decisions that an Apple that just had the Mac and the iPad or the Mac, the iPad, and an iPhone that was at the same sales level as the Mac and the iPad. They're roughly comparable in terms of revenue. What decisions would that company make in terms of its product direction and development? And what decisions does the real Apple make? And, you know, those decisions are going to be different, I think. Because I don't think it's a question of, like, there's only one path forward. I think there's a question of there are lots of paths forward. Which paths do we choose to walk down? And how much do energy do we invest in them? And the existence of the iPhone is this great success. You know, that is that is going to lead you down those paths. The paths that are fed by and can feed the iPhone. Um, I think it benefits. Ultimately, I do think the Mac and the iPad benefit to a certain degree just because there's so much money. And it makes Apple successful, and there's a halo around the iPhone that extends to those products. But, you know, you, at the same time, if you stand up and say, yeah, the iOS for iPads, you know, that that interface and software should be better. Um, you may get a lot of agreement even inside Apple, e- even inside the iOS development team, that the iPad could be a better product, that iOS could be tuned more for the iPad. At the same time, <laughs> look at the numbers. What are you going to prioritize? It's very difficult to prioritize the iPad ever, I think, when you look at the iPhone. So it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's just it's fascinating to look at that number and, and try to imagine what that does to a company's priorities. Lister Jeff uh, wrote in 
and uh, related to this and said, has the iPhone become a little boring and too mainstream? Is it time for Apple to do something with the next major model that either does something interesting hardware or software wise? I'd personally like them to incorporate some gesture-based maneuvers for app switching, for example. Not a bad idea, Jeff, but um, I think what I would say is um, boring and boring and mainstream when it is this uh, making this much money. Again, uh, how motivated is Apple to do something big that's like different? I, other than wanting to improve things, but I think there's also a feeling like, why would you mess up the thing that's doing so crazily well? And I, I guess this is one of those things that I always uh, hear on uh, ATP that John Syracuse especially talks about, which is this, you know, the idea that success um, hides a lot of problems. And I, I think this is one of those good examples, which is at, at some point, if the iPhone really could make a step and be that much better, is there a point at which Apple would be hesitant to do that because uh, it's just too successful now? I mean, the, the counter argument would be back in the day, and this is in Apple's DNA, I really do believe, is that the iPad mini, iPod mini was the biggest selling iPod and they killed it and replaced it with the Nano because they thought it was better. And you would like that to be part of this com- company's culture, that they will not be afraid to make a big change. But at the same time, they are not going to want to alienate their existing iPhone audience. I don't know. Yeah. What sure. do you think? No, I think I think boring and mainstream is 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 a little harsh. Um, I I I don't think I would agree with that. I think it's always good and fun to have new things, but like I don't by by kind yeah. of I don't think necessarily that gestures. Like you know, the the pre would then make the iPhone not boring. If your current concern is that it's boring, you know, I, I don't, I don't yeah. really. Right. Considering well, the phone just significantly changed form factor, mm-hmm. like I don't think you can get bigger than yeah. that. The six, the six is a big, a big uh, thing. I wrote a piece on MacWorld back in April of last year, titled "Apple is not here to entertain you." And it came out of a conversation I was having with Renee Ritchie uh, over lunch in Petaluma, actually, after we did a, one of the Twitch shows. And um, the idea is, yeah, I get it. People want Apple to do new things, but the, Apple's business is not to not to keep analysts and reporters and even fans of technology entertained by new things. You know, that's not the, their job. Their job is to make great products and and have a successful business. And uh, they do entertain us from time to time, but their job is not to like, because uh, it's like, you know, we have this incredibly successful product. Come on, that's boring. You already had that product. Give us a new product. Like, no, we're going to keep doing this good product that we have. Entertain, you know, I get that it might not be as entertaining, but it's incredibly successful and a popular product and people like it. And so that's okay. As long as it isn't hiding problems. Uh, you know, I, I would hate for Apple to bypass a revolutionary change to the iPhone because they don't need to bother. But um, th- they seem to try very hard to not go down that path. Should we address something? Uh, yeah, yeah, we should. Um, the well, I want uh, one more point on this, just really quickly, okay. which was I, I like that Tim Cook talked about the iPad um, and gave it. His and it's in my transcript that I put on six colors about it because um, I, I transcribed everything Tim Cook said. I, you know, recorded and then I used those fast typing fingers to get that 
to get a transcript of everything Tim Cook said in the in the call. And he makes his sort of impassioned defense of the iPad and says, "Look, it's um, the obviously the refresh cycle, the buying cycle is not as as rapid as it is for for iPhones." Uh, but he's a believer in the category. I, I think it's interesting to watch that because iPad sales were flat. And they, they're flat. They're, the iPad sales are flat. So it's it's something to watch. Um, it's interesting to see that, app, that Apple's not backing away from it in the sense that Tim Cook says that, you know, over time he believes that this is a fantastic category. I also feel like the iPad is unfairly being compared to the iPhone because the iPhone smartphones are just a different category. Smartphones do not follow the same laws as computers and tablets. They don't. Nope. It's much more the iPad business is roughly the Mac business at this point, which is not bad. It's a that's a good business to be in, but it's not the iPhone. And it's not gonna be the iPhone. So it's something that, that that's worth watching, but I, I do think it's worth uh people checking out what Tim Cook said about the iPad because it, it's a statement about how they believe in it, but that they're still learning what um what the issues are and how often people are going to buy a new iPad because the iPads last iPads last and there's no subsidy to drive you to buy a new model every two years. That's totally it. I think, yeah. I think Apple in the long term, I believe will need to get accustomed to the fact that people will upgrade their iPads as frequently as they upgrade their, their Macs or PCs. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I think I think that that's the thing that they maybe hoped wouldn't be the case naturally, yeah. uh, but I think time is 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 telling that 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 is kind of the way people treat these devices. Yeah, well, I mean, you you upgrade every two years, you'll upgrade an iPhone for two hundred dollars, but that's because your phone company is paying the other three or four hundred, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and the iPad doesn't. If the iPad was one ninety nine, um, maybe that would be the case, but that's just not, and that's just not how it works. That's it's. Not how it works. Do you know what? I, I still don't even think that that would be it. I think it's the inertia of the one of the contract ending that yeah. that pushes people. Um, and it just isn't they there. They can do it. Yeah, and that just it just isn't a thing. Right. You could argue that most of the phones um, phone life can be much longer than two years too. Um, maybe not as long as an iPad, but longer than it is. But with if you're on a contract cycle, it makes it that much easier. You actually in the U.S. The, the way the contracts generally have worked up till now, um, some ha- some are changing this, but generally um, the phone companies calculated out their, their subsidy is covered in two years and your contract is two years. You can keep your phone for three years. They don't make your bill, in most cases, any lower. <laughs> so you're motivated to get a new phone every two years because otherwise you're just handing money back to the phone company. Yeah. So there's there are actually a bunch of motivations. Um, now that that is changing. Some of the plans now are very are more specifically subsidy pay, plans, and you're paying extra for the length of the subsidy and not forever. And then there's less motivation to get a new phone right away because your your bill goes down. Yep. Okay, we should we should make a note before we move on to our next topic that uh, something crazy happened. <laughs> I used to play a uh, I used to play a dice baseball game. Um, this is going to be right up your alley, uh, Mike. Um, <laughs> a, di- a tabletop uh, dice baseball game. Um, a couple, actually. And uh, both of them had the same mechanic, which is if you rolled a certain set of dice, a certain a certain dice roll. Um, it's like D&D for sports nerds, basically, is what I'm saying. Uh, but there would be... Uh, I remember in the game that I played in high school, it was 38 was something crazy happens. It's like... Almost everything else was just a normal play, but then you, the crazy thing would come up, and you'd be like, "Oh, 
what happened? And then something something weird, there'd be a guy would be hit by a pitch or there'd be an injury or whatever. You, during the middle of the last segment, rolled 38. Yeah, I did. And all the crazy things happened simultaneously. So you are now hearing me locally recorded. Up to this point, you have heard uh, the Skype recording. I apologize if it sounded uh, below our usual standards. But basically... Skype seemed to be the catalyst for a catastrophic destruction of my Mac, <laughs> in which my entire UI froze. Uh, the clock didn't move for five minutes, uh, and I had to, to uh, suffer multiple restarts. Uh, I upgraded Skype, then it couldn't read or see any of my audio inputs or outputs. Uh, so after lots of troubleshooting and um, reading the K-Base, uh, here we are, and I think we're okay. Um, and and we can we can move on ahead, but it was kind of a, a catastrophic failure enough that we wanted to point it out <laughs> at this point during the show, and then move on yeah. from it. We survived, apparently. That's that's the rumor. You shouldn't say up to this point. Now now it all sounds good because you don't know. We may be patching in. You may have another failure here. It's possible, but probably yeah. not. Well, we'll address that one when we come to it. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Wait for the next footnote. All right, do you want to talk, before we get to Ask Upgrade in the movie, do you want to talk about YouTube a little bit? Because this was a link you put in the show notes actually last week and we didn't mm-hmm. get to it. Yeah, I, I did want to talk about this. Um, I'm I'm actually currently listening, well, before we were listening to, started the show today, I was listening to an episode of Hello Internet, which is the show that everybody knows I love so much. And, yeah. and Brady and Gray were just about to start discussing this this issue. So for the YouTube discussion, I haven't heard it yet. This is sort of advanced follow-out. It's follow-out with, with us having not heard it yet. Yeah, it's some, I, I would assume that that's probably the way we could look at things. But I, I think that <laughs> they they are probably going to have a much better discussion about the YouTube side. And it isn't really... I don't really want to talk about YouTube per se. So let, let me just set this up. So basically, uh, musician, uh, musician Zoe Keating, uh, she is kind of being pushed by YouTube into signing uh, the contract for the new YouTube music deal um so basically at the moment she can currently decide whether if her music is used in a video if she wants to take a cut of the ads from it that's kind of the contract that she's currently on she can then youtube want to move her into a totally different contract which has totally different um rules and regulations uh about the way that her music is done and she have to you know people she could be a paid channel and there'll be ads and everything and basically the stuff that she doesn't want to do now, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because there was a bit of discussion on the day that you, you wrote a little piece. This is like a week or so ago right. uh, with people that are on YouTube, people that are not on YouTube and looking at how kind of YouTube owns this market. And if you want to create videos on the Internet, you have to be on YouTube. Like yes. there is nowhere else. You, you can be on other places, but you will not get the critical mass that you want. If you want to get the audience, the audience is there. And it made me think about what we do and the fact that there is not currently one single source and how important I think that that is right. for entertainment and media, for there not to be one single source because you're you're destroyed. Like I am very intrigued like looking at how Microsoft was, was completely railroaded by the European Union that YouTube is not finding itself or Google is not finding itself in a sort of sticky situation with them because it is very much like they own the pipe. They own everything. And it's all there and you have no say and there's nowhere else you can go. But I know that there's there's lots of different 
reasons as to why it was a problem for Microsoft. But I just look at it and think, you are such a dominant force. You are such an incredible monopoly on the video streaming world. It's It scares me to think that somebody might come and try and do this to podcasts. And there are companies that are trying, but they are not really... I, I, I don't... They are having success. I don't know how much they are succeeding, though, you know? Well, yeah, it's the... Um, I mean, the fact that podcasts are founded on RSS is a fundamentally decentralizing feature. That even even when you have a big co- podcast directory like iTunes, in the end, all iTunes is doing is pointing you back at an RSS feed that is elsewhere. And that has had this great democratizing effect. Although it also, you know... Not having an official central point for all podcasts does make it harder to find podcasts. I, w- I would argue that this is one of the great things about the iTunes directory for podcasts is there is a place run by a company everybody knows that has a directory of podcasts. And yep. that's really good. You need to be in that directory. You don't have to be, but it's a really good place to go. People know that they can look on iTunes for podcasts. And it's like YouTube, except that Apple doesn't actually f- serve the files or... You know, they, they they could remove you from the podcast directory, but they just don't care. It's a hands-off kind of thing. It's just the podcast directory is is there for you to use, and it's decentralized behind it. And YouTube is not the case, and it is scary. Um, and yes, I'm sure Stitcher or, you know, some company like that would love to be able to be... Um, it's not like... I think what would need to happen is there would need to be some sort of groundswell for a particular kind of uh, kind of technology, or or you know, all the cars get only one way that podcasts get into cars, or only two ways, and they're they're through Stitcher or you know Company X, and that's mm-hmm. it. That would be the scary thing because then yep. they could really exert power and say you know here if you want to if you want to play if you want to be in the only place that they're that most listeners go then we have power over you and that that's where youtube is right now and, and it's scary because youtube is i mean gray called it a it's a monopoly and a monopsony it is the only market and it is the only place for people to receive the goods and it is you know it is the soviet uh grocery store with the long bread line um my kids are huge youtube fans they are youtube viewers they they watch youtube like i watched sitcoms at four in the afternoon when i was a kid i mean like they don't need to watch gilligan's island they have youtube and they watch it that's what that's their tv um and it's all on YouTube and it all links to other things on YouTube and all the creators are on YouTube. And maybe we'll get to the point where there's a an alternative to YouTube. I'm sure people are trying, but uh, Google's purchase of YouTube has turned out to be pretty powerful because that is that is the place that it, it's like its own genre, its own network. It's it is everything and it is wildly successful. And there's a whole generation um coming up now that is going to view YouTube as just the definitive place where all video lives. So it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. It, it, in fact, um, I, I mean, I could see like five or 10 years out a scenario where Google's uh, you know, what we think of as Google's big businesses, uh, especially like the text ad stuff is a lot less relevant, but Google controls all video advertising on the internet, essentially with yeah. this, I, with YouTube. I, I actually do believe, and I've been thinking about this recently, that 
in you know 50 60 100 years google will be remembered for youtube primarily i think that that is going to be the thing that that people will remember them for i think it'll be like a trivia question did you know that that google search engine also was behind youtube yeah wow really both of those things were from the same company yeah in fact google bought youtube wow they bought them wow i hope they spent a lot of money on I mean, because YouTube, I was trying to explain this to somebody, I think maybe it was on the talk show, because John Gruber's son is, is roughly my son's age. It, you know, YouTube is not like, even like uh, Channel 2 showing Gilligan's Island reruns in the afternoon when I was a kid. YouTube is all the TV networks. <laughs> YouTube is not like a TV network when I was a kid. It's all, it's television. Imagine one company owning all of television. For my kids' generation, that's what this is. It's it's not that's why I think it's that's why I think it's a good buy. Um, and Minecraft, it's the same deal. Microsoft buying Minecraft, they're, they're buying they're not buying a a game. They're kind of buying the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and between Minecraft and YouTube, you've pretty much described eighty um, percent of my kids' entertainment life over the last four years. It's like it's not even so much it's it's all of the TV. It's everything you could ever want to watch. Like, yeah. that's the difference. It's not just it's all the TV channels. It's like, what do you want to watch right now? Okay, it's on YouTube. Like, because somebody's making it. Someone somewhere yeah. is making it. Like, my nephew watches people, like, videos of people unboxing toys. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And just showing toys on, on YouTube. Yep. Or he watches people play uh, Disney Infinity. Like it's just what he does, and it's like yep. it's just this crazy world. And I remember when he was he was like um, maybe eighteen months old, uh, and he was playing with my iPhone for the first time. Playing with my iPhone, he watches uh, YouTube on my brother's like his dad, his dad's iPhone. But I gave him my iPhone, and he navigated to the screen and opened the folder in which he could see the YouTube icon. Like and, and I was just blown away because he didn't know where it was, but he saw that little red play button inside mm-hmm. that folder, and he knew what that meant. And you know, and then he started going around like the recent history because he knew that was where the videos were in his mind. Amazing that he's he's been watching. Like that's his remote control, right? That is that is his world, his entertainment view. Now I think that this is incredibly powerful, and I think that YouTube from you know fundamentally is is a great thing because it enables that and it enables creation and it enables people to find a voice for themselves online anything like that is fantastic the problem is when it becomes a business and it and it's the only option i think that it it it, it, youtube the great thing about youtube is not google or the youtube (laughs) company the great thing about youtube is the people within it creating the stuff and and like that's when it becomes a problem. So like with podcasts, we have all of the people, but there is no company that is making us do anything. Right. And, and I if think, you don't if you don't like your deal, you go you go somewhere else and get a better deal. Yeah, because all of the companies that you might get deals with, there are other ones. Right. There and are, with YouTube, the Zoe Keating example that was chilling, and it's unclear whether this was just some overzealous rep or what, but the 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 message was essentially here are our new terms. You can either say yes or you can you can go away. And where Those are you, your options? And where are you going to go? And where are you going to go? Like this is your living. What are you going to do? Yeah, it'll happen though. Some some YouTuber or 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 set of YouTube stars will 
do will will do something where they go off of YouTube and all that's left on YouTube is pointers to this other place and that that'll I mean it's I think it's already happened but not super successfully but I feel like that will just keep happening you you're going to you're going to try to somebody's going to try to establish a competitor and try to make deals with these YouTubers to come over but it's scary for them because you know, unless you're guaranteeing them revenue, you know, you're really risking, you're losing that ecosystem. You're, because not, not only do they have their followers, but th- those people are, are subscribed to, you know, 20 or 30 different YouTubers and they're all kind of mixed in together. It's like leaving a TV network. You, you're, you're out of the rotation over there. And instead you have to remember to go to this other site and watch the videos over there. It's a tough, it's tough. I mean, this is, that's the kind of mindshare YouTube has. So yeah, I hope that doesn't happen for podcasting, but it would really, re- at this point, it would really require a, um, some technological shift that where somebody gets in somewhere that really opens the door to a huge audience, and that's why I keep bringing up the car. And if you know, if it ended up that every car had Stitcher, and that was that was you know the only way people were listening to podcasts in cars anymore, then we would all be like, I guess we have to go to Stitcher, and that yep. would be scary. But I don't think it's going to happen because I think in all those cases, it's app, it's like app radio and there'll be multiple options. Even if it ends up being, unfortunately, like you have to make a deal with somebody to get into the car. But even, you know, even there, I feel like there will be some better independent options. Yep. Because that's why we're not on Stitcher. Like, I, I've, I've taken a look at some of their contract terms and I and me and Stephen, we just... We don't want to sign it because we don't think we have to, so we're not going yeah. to. It's as simple yeah. as that. Like, yeah. we're we're perfectly fine with the audience that we have, um, and and that audience grows and that audience comes from where it comes from. Uh, I I don't, I'm not really in the interest of signing my our souls away, you know. Yeah. All right, we should move on. Yes. So. so- we we should get do some ask upgrade before we do yes. our special inaugural movie segment. Uh, Indeed, would you like to to tell our friends who is sponsoring Ask Upgrade this week? Yes, hashtag Ask Upgrade is brought to you this week by Stamps dot com. Uh, trips to the post office are never convenient. Why not get postage right from your desk with Stamps dot com? Stamps dot com even gives you special postage discounts you can't get at the post office, including first class, priority mail, express, international, and more. You'll never pay full price for postage. Again, so here's how it works. You use your own computer, your own printer, um, buy and print official U.S. postage. This is why Mike cannot read this ad because he is not in the U.S. Official U.S. postage for any letter or package. You hand it to the mailman or drop it in a mailbox and it goes. And that's it. More than 500,000 small businesses are using stamps.com. This is great if you're a small business. It's great if you've got a small business on the side and you're trying to put together shipping at home in the evening and you, you know, you've got your day job and shipping is a pain and you don't want to wait. You're not, you don't have the time to wait at the post office. It's a great solution for that. And right now you can use our promo code, which is upgrade the name of the podcast you're listening to, to get a special offer. You get a no risk trial and there is a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale. I've got a digital scale right here. Can you tap it? Digital (laughs) scale. Yeah. And up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in upgrade that'll let them know that we sent you and you will get the special deal so that's stamps.com easy to remember enter code upgrade and thank you so much to stamps.com for sponsoring 
upgrade, I will uh, endeavor to send, I've got a couple packages to mail out now using stamps.com. I have to put together my care package for Mike. I haven't done that yet. And I'm sending a little uh, care package to Dan Warren all the way in Boston. And uh, I'm going to put that together later today and stick it in my mailbox. And I'm not going to even walk to the post office because why? There are people there. I don't, I don't want to deal with those people. If anything, stamps.com is great for Jason Snell to send people gifts. And if that's not a reason enough to sign Indeed. up so you can send gifts, then I don't know what is. <laughs> Care packages. It's, it's important for my business. It's business development for the Incomparable Incorporated. Uh, ask update grade time. Just a few selected entries from the uh, hashtag. Listener Brian wrote in to say, do you pirate movies or television? If so, how do you explain this to your kids or your future kids? How do you explain this to your future kids, Mike? Um, is it, and is it different than jailbreak and app pirating? So um, I'll answer first. I don't pirate stuff. I, I will make a minor exception for things that are completely unavailable for purchase or rent. And even then, I feel like I need to buy something in order to uh, balance out my my uh, media karma. So, for example, there was a period where Doctor Who was airing months in advance in the UK, um, and I bit torrented those and pre-ordered the the DVDs, <laughs> and I felt like, eh, it's a fair trade. Um, and back in the pre-comicsology days, I would uh, I would occasionally download comic torrents. And I, uh, that would basically drive sales of, I would buy the trades or the hardcovers of those comics. And I wasn't, I wasn't downloading new issues. I was sort of like downloading the, oh, here's 50 issues of this comic. And I'd read them and I'd be like, okay. And then I'd buy the hardcover of that. So I, I don't do it much at all anymore. Uh, like I said, unless there's something um, that's just totally unavailable in the U.S. And then occasionally I'll do that like... Um, Let's see, Black Mirror, which is now on Netflix, was not available in the U.S. for several years. And uh, one of the incomparable people uh, saw it, presumably on BitTorrent, and recommended it highly. And I watched that through that means. But that's about it. Uh, I would say the only difference between that and something like app pirating for me is that with app pirating, you are often harming a small business. And with movie and TV show pirating, you're harm usually harming a huge conglomerate or set of conglomerates. I'm not sure that really makes it any better or worse, but it is different in that way. Um, but anyway, yeah, that that's my, my feeling about piracy is that um, at this point, I'm really, I'm not using it to get around buying things. I'm using it occasionally to get around geographic restrictions or distribution problems um, or just an unavailability of something digitally. That happens. Um, sometimes for the incomparable, we have that where we're trying to talk about something that's not widely available. And, uh, or, or I've downloaded some British stuff early because we had, I did a Doctor Who recap with somebody in Scotland and um, it wasn't going to air in, in the U.S. until like four in the morning his time. So I downloaded the BitTorrent version, watched it, we talked, and then I watched it again with my family on TV that night. So, um, and when I can, I buy things in order to balance out the books. So that's mine. Mike, what about you? I do feel like the the balancing out the books thing should be like, that should make it okay. Like legally, like that should be fine. Uh, it does just, it doesn't but uh, you know i feel better about it like i i felt yeah. better about about those doctor who downloads because i bought the dvd it's like all right well look 
I am. I, I I was not patronizing. I think I even recorded them when they aired in the U.S. Just like to feel better about having recorded them when they aired in the U.S. But you know, ideally, yes, I should have waited patiently for them to air months later in the U.S. and watch those and watch the commercials, and then felt good about it. But at least, like with the comics, it's the same thing. You know, I I, I downloaded a BitTorrent of whatever of Invincible, and then I liked it, and then I bought the bought the trades or Why the Last Man, something like that, and. Uh, it's not not ideal, and I don't do that anymore because it's a lot easier to get the, that stuff legally through a digital means because I was also reading comics on a device. I wasn't reading them on paper. So that made a big difference too. So, it, you know, but it doesn't... I don't think it absolves me legally, but I feel like it absolves me somehow morally, karmically, in some way to have given the creator money after the fact. I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, before, before people email us... Um, Yes, I understand that if you are not being very careful with your um, settings, your your peer-to-peer settings, by using BitTorrent, you are helping other people find that's true. the stuff. And I know that that's, that's probably the bigger problem. But, you know, you can you can lock off your upload and, and not, not be sharing out. You're just... But I'm sure that there are... You know, anyway. Invincible, by the way, is a great comic book. It is. I thoroughly recommend it it's a favorite of mine <laughs> uh so i'm going to put that in the show notes which you can find at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 21 or in your podcast app of choice right now indeed <laughs> yes um so i i've my main reason for for not pirating these days is i cannot be bothered with the aggravation uh of pirating i find oh, it yeah. to be a frustrating experience full of uh, just things that I'm not interested in doing. That's the classic Steve Jobs line, right? When he announced the iTunes store, he w- one of the things he said was, it's hard to use these peer-to-peer networks and the, the quality is questionable and the tagging is bad and you it's hard to find this stuff and it's much easier to just go on iTunes and click a button. And, uh, you know, he was right. that There is something to that. People will pay, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people will pay for convenience. And so if you can make the legal means convenient and pirating is sort of fundamentally inconvenient in in many or most cases, then, uh, you know, that makes a difference. Unless you're like literally like, I, I cannot and will not buy this. But that's a different approach than saying it's, I, I'm willing to pay to, to get that convenience. So I... Um I just believe in streaming. Just please make it available. Like that's all I want. Just make it available. I will pay. Like I, I will pay. Like when I was looking for the Princess Bride, I googled for it, and there were a bunch of like daily motion videos or whatever, and I just ignored them until I could find the easiest way to pay, and I went to iTunes. Yeah. Like because I just don't want the aggravation. There are. I mean, I guess the only thing that I maybe do that's questionable is like I use like American Netflix uh, via using a VPN. Uh, Cloak is my VPN of choice, by the way. Big fan of that. Uh, I like Cloak a lot. Getcloak.com. Yep. Works on iOS and Mac. It's really, really, really fancy. I'm a big fan. Um, But so, you know, sometimes I will do that. Like I will will sign into American Netflix. Uh, Like we're watching Parks and Recreation at the moment. Mm. And Amazon Prime Instant only has the first three seasons in the UK. So to get more, to get like seasons four to seven, I can sign into American Netflix. Like I don't even understand why these things happen. Like okay, I do, but like it makes no sense to me. Like why right. do this? Just make it available to me. Like don't don't make me do this. You you are making me want to pirate. Like season three ended in like two thousand and ten. 
Like, come on. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> Parks and Rec is a great show, by the way. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Fantastic show. I'm really, really enjoying it a lot. Um, so that's kind of my thing. I, I do that. I, I use Cloak. But I'm a paying customer of those services. So if I was in the United States of America, that's what I would be seeing. But I'm yeah. not. I'm here. There's nothing I can do about it. All right. Well, that, that good good mini topic. I bet we'll have some feedback on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, another ask upgrade. Uh, listener Chris said, podcasting is a large chunk of both of your careers. How many hours a week do you guys spend working on your shows? What do you think, Mike? This is so hard for me to answer now because it's literally all of my time, you know? Uh, because there's so much more that goes into it. So, like, for example, for this show, for the, like, the standard pre-preparation, Jason puts the majority of the work in. He puts together the document, which is fantastic, and, and I love him dearly for that. And and that's the same with, with most of my shows, actually, is that the, the co-hosts that I work with put together the document, and then I take care of all of the other bits, you know? Um, like, make sure that there's advertisers and make sure that, my my Mac doesn't blow up. I didn't do very well doing that today. Uh, but, you know, I do the editing and the posting and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. Maybe let's say we used to kind of, used to kind of say like, oh, for every hour that I that we record, it's probably an hour's worth of other stuff as well. And I think that that's still a pretty fair thing to say. Um, but one of my big things is it's not even like active time working on the shows. It's thinking about them. Mm. I think about them all the time, you know, like what can we do for this show? Like I have a little idea and then I put that in a document or, uh, oh, why don't we try this and send a message to you? And, you know, like, so there's so much like even like unconscious time, I guess, that goes into them now. But like for me, it's it's, it's all I do. I mean, it's probably different for you. Um, right. Because you you do other things as well, but basically all of all of my working time is is on podcasts. But one of the big things is it's changing show by show now. It used to be very clear cut. I would do this. Like, these are my responsibilities. These are responsibilities of my co-hosts, and this is how long it would take to edit. But now I have different shows that I edit in different ways, mm-hmm. and I prepare for some shows differently to this show. So it's it's very flexible right now. But it's all of my working time. Well, all of my all of my shows are different. Um, I mentioned this actually in a piece that we'll link to, which I went, which went up on Six Colors, uh, the day that we recorded this, February second. Um, it's uh, about how I edit podcasts, and in there, I, I I say, look, every one of my shows is different, and the amount of work that goes into it is different. You're absolutely right. There is this unconscious time. This is true about writing stuff too. There's the time where you're thinking about things that somebody on the outside would look at and say, look, you're not doing anything now, but you actually are. Um, and we have the, the the Relay FM Slack group, and there's stuff that shoots around in there that I think is informing what we uh, end up with on the shows. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff like that that's hard to define. But it's also true that there's the, the the specific stuff. So yeah, on Friday afternoon, as I'm wrapping up my uh, my work week, I have that moment where I start to think about what am I going to talk about on upgrade, and and that kind of goes through the weekend. And at some point on Sunday night or Monday morning, I will go through our document and uh, start to you know cull things from uh, the Ask Upgrade list and from Twitter and from email and think about what the topics are of the last week and what, what's worth talking about. Um, and then there's the time to record. 
Uh, this show is different because you do the editing. So that's actually very different in terms of my time input because I'm really spending the time we, we spend talking and then the thinking about it beforehand and assembling a document, which isn't a massive amount of time, but it's definitely time. For something like Clockwise, there's time spent booking guests because we have to book two guests every week. Um, and I'm trying to do that more in advance, which actually saves me time because I can send out invitations and try to schedule people weeks in advance instead of every week having to try and beat the bushes and find, you know, a couple of people who are free at that particular time. So that, that takes time. And, um, doing the show doesn't take a lot of time. It's, you know, probably we're on Skype for about 40 minutes, but it's a half an hour show. So that's easy. And then the, the editing time is mostly me, um, getting it to length. If we like last week's show was 34 minutes long. So I had to pull four minutes of conversation out of a pretty tight show, <laughs> which is hard, but that's the format. So that's what it is. For something like um, TV Talk Machine, which I do with uh, TV critic Tim Goodman, that's a Skype conversation. That's a two-person Skype conversation. I do almost nothing to that show. So we talk for an hour or a little bit less than an hour. And then in about 10 minutes, I've edited it and posted it because there's very little for me to do. I don't really unless, – unless I note something where you know one of us had to – you know, had a technical problem or had to go talk to our, our kids who were being too loud or something like that. That's pretty much a just very straightforward kind of show. Something like The Incomparable, not only is there, uh, there is scheduling time for that, um, but, uh, and then the, the those shows, recording sessions tend to be a couple hours long. And then that is, I posted a video of my, of my edit process for an episode of The Incomparable. That's a two to four hour long post-production for most, I'd say on average is probably about two or three hours um, to do an episode of that, and that that's I edit that more more uh, in a more detailed fashion than I do other shows. And part of that is the content of the show, and part of that is the number of panelists on the show, and the fact that it's an unstructured conversation. So there's more interruptions that have to get smoothed out, and all of that. And then the total party kill is, uh, you know, that's a totally different commitment because that's a, you know, three or four hour uh, gameplay, which we usually have about a half an hour of technical frustrations at the beginning to get it rolling. But then it's just me having fun. And then, and then over the course of several weeks, I have to go through the edit and uh, do a less detailed edit than I do for something like The Incomparable, but still, you know, I'm still looking for stray noises and things like that. So it, it varies. I, I numbered it up. I, I haven't tallied in a while how much time I spent on podcasts, but you know, I think it's pretty efficient. Like this podcast, I probably spend three hours a week on. And clockwise, I probably spend two hours a week on. And incomparable, I probably spend five hours a week on. And uh, TV Talk Machine, that's probably like an hour and a half. So it's it, it varies based on what the show is. But like, so like saying about that, that episode of Connected that we did. Uh, oh my God. That, that took me between five and six hours to edit that. Well, we talked about on one of your previous interview shows, we talked about the radio drama and the incomparable radio drama, you know, the first one and, and, the, and the second one, too. They probably both took me 30 or 40 hours to edit. But those yeah. are, you know, exceptions to the rule. There's the weekly there's the weekly cycle of like this is what a regular episode is. And then there's the it's just like anything. Right. Then there's the, the week where you have to work above and beyond because you're on some crazy project and then you go back down. And it's like now we're back in kind of regular, regular time mode. Anyway. How, I hope that answers your question, listener Chris. <laughs> you, you do the math. Add it, add it all up. Um, but it, it varies. The recording time and the edit time can really vary. And then there's the prep time that can vary. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not I, I get the impression from some people it's like I can't believe you do like you do what six shows and I do five four yeah. a week six weekly shows and four weekly shows and there's like I, how do you have time for anything else and for me the answer is um, it's a part-time job it is a big chunk of my time but it's still not you know it's you can do the math there but it's less than 20 hours a week that I spend on this yeah so I could do more but I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah you can't do more trust me yeah. no, I do more. but like you yeah. know for me it's, it's it's there's so much more you know now than for me to do than there ever was before with, with sure. all of my arrangements uh, because we run the machine um, and and that and the machine takes a lot of oil to get it to run right um, well there's the running the business part of it too that is yep uh, totally that's not on every show that's like running your business it's separate mm-hmm. from the shows but that's also time and I have that with with uh, incomparable and six colors both um, Brian real-time follow-up Brian Hamilton asked in the chat room how does uh, how do my sound quality standards shift between shows um, that's a really good question <sighs> That is an excellent question because I do have different standards. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I like I said, I I I do I do TV talk machine and I don't even record. I, I just use the Skype call. <laughs> I don't even have Tim record his end. And my my two reasons for doing that is generally our Skype call is very good quality, and we're both local. You know, we're both in the Bay Area. It's very good quality. It's fine. And two is he's not a super technical guy. And I kind of just don't want to walk him through the steps every week of doing his own recording and then getting it to me. And if it was a problem, I would probably go through and set him up with Dropbox and set him up with Call Recorder and all of that. But it's never been a problem, and I don't want to bother. So my standards are a little lower. But since it's only two people talking and it generally is of good quality, it's good enough for me. And I still do take the two tracks and noise gate them and compress them and do some stuff with them. But I don't ask for a a self-recorded track for him. And that's the only show I do like that. All the rest of them, you know, it varies somewhat, but I try to have everybody record their end, and then it's just a matter of what you prioritize. With Incomparable, I'm prioritizing over-talking and interruptions because that's a panel show. With Clockwise, uh, because the format is so regimented, there's not a lot of over-talking and interruption, but it has to fit in 30 minutes, so that's what I prioritize is, is cutting it to fit. It just varies. And Total Party Kill, I'm all over the place because I told myself when we started doing that that I wasn't going to edit that heavily at all. And it turns out I edited it about as heavily. In my Six Colors piece, I say I don't. It's a lie. I kind of edit that as heavily, almost as heavily as I do The Incomparable. And that's I probably shouldn't because it takes too much time. <laughs> but I, I, but I kind of do. I kind of just get into the habit of saying... I want to get out all those, uh, you know, all the over-talking and all the weird, like, people bumping their microphones because it sounds better. But sometimes it's just, you know, what I said in that article, and Mike, I know we've talked about this too, is there's a spectrum. There's like, on the one side, it's like, uh, my wife listens to a knitting podcast that literally they press record and then they press stop. and, And like, the act of pressing record is in the podcast. And if they have to go away for a moment, they say, okay, we're going to pause it. And then, and now we're back. They like literally there is no editing. And then on the other end of the spectrum is something that's like an NPR podcast or something that's like super edited within an inch of its life. And as you move from the one side to the other, it's just time. It's more more and more 
exponentially increasing time. And you got to decide. Every show is different. And I, that's what I found is every podcast that I do falls somewhere on that spectrum. And it's different based on what the needs are of that show. And I think that's absolutely true. The Relay, the relay shows are more similar than my shows are. But, they're, but still, every show is going to be different. And you're editing someone else's show now, too. And that, the Rocket. So that's got to be mm-hmm. a different experience still. Right? That's totally different. Editing a show that's not mine is weird. It's, it's weird. Uh, I like to do it because um, whilst whilst we're getting kind of the kinks worked out, I have the ability to help guide the show a little bit, which which I quite like. Um, so I can give them thoughts and, and stuff like that. And, and, and it, that I like that. So And also I would be listening to the show anyway, so I may as well make it part of my work at the moment. Right. Um which is which is yeah which is fun um but yeah it's it's different it's totally different because it's i don't know there's something strange about it cuz i don't know what's going to happen next like if if i'm editing something of my own i kind of have a feeling of like oh i know i need to work on this bit um it's strange it's it's just a different kind of kind of experience i probably won't edit rocket forever um we're probably going to get someone to help us on it but just for the time being uh, I am, which is which is a good thing. I like doing that for them, uh, to to lend a hand. But I agree. Like uh, different shows that we do, that they're similar. Um, but but I do have different kind of standards of the amount of time that I spend on shows, um, and that comes from like uh, audience size to the discerningness of the audience. So I feel like. And I believe there's like listeners of the pen addict are less critical about audio than listeners of this show. Uh, and if you listen to Bonanza, well, God help you. Uh, that that just rolls out as it rolls out, you know. It's just just kind of there's just different different kind of uh, different strokes for different folks. I think. Yeah. Two quick. Uh, we have two more quick uh, bits of ask upgrade that I'll just blow through here really quickly. Uh, listener Yap. Uh, wrote in to say, every time I see Manchego cheese, I have to think about the Manchego vertical and send a picture of Manchego cheese. So I wanted to mention this only to throw in my Super Bowl fact. We had Manchego. Philip Michaels, Lisa Schmeiser, and their daughter came over for the Super Bowl. Always nice to have more people around for the Super Bowl. We had some Manchego. We had a nice cheddar that I got from from Whole Foods. And uh, some Gouda. So that's your cheese update, your cheese vertical update. Super Bowl. You missed the Super Bowl this year, Mike. You were sleeping. Oh, it's so frustrating. So that was the plan because I had something I needed to do this morning. Then I couldn't sleep oh. and just just read about the Super Bowl on Twitter. I was awake for the entire Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm so annoyed because I really enjoy watching it, uh, but but didn't. Like I could have even watched it online, but no, I, I didn't. I thought I was trying to sleep, and then I was just kind of reading Twitter while, when I couldn't sleep. Oh. So never mind. Never mind. It looked like it was an exciting one. And last uh, bit of Ask Upgrade is Peanut Gallery, who said, I wish for an iOS app that would let me listen to Relay FM Live and participate in the live chat room, which I think is a good idea. And I, I mentioned this in my uh, monologue in the chat room earlier. Um, I, I don't think a dedicated app for this is necessarily going to reach a big enough audience. But if you've got a... If somebody has a suggestion, if there's some some app out there that does this, that would be great. I'd love to hear about it. But um, if you are a developer of a, an iOS IRC app, IRC chat app, um, I guess C stands for chat, IRC app, um, 
you could probably make a nice uh, differentiator uh, of a feature by point, letting your users also point the app to a, a stream URL and do audio while you're in the chat room because that is a use case for podcast fans. So I don't know about a dedicated app or not, but uh, if somebody knows something, because that it happens that like you you set it to you set it to uh, stream audio in the background, and then you go to your IRC app, and at some point there's memory problems, and it quits the stream, and then you're not listening anymore. If only you, if only you knew the man in charge. Yeah, if only. Anyway, so this is going to be the first Mike watches a movie vertical. Uh, yes. And and at the end of the episode, I will announce there is going to be another one next there week. There is. Which I'm excited about. Um, but the Mike watches a movie vertical is brought to you by our friends at MailRoute. Yes, indeed. MailRoute is the, the sponsor of this vertical. Imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. You don't need to imagine it because it's real if you use MailRoute like I do. Open your email, see only legit email that you want and need to receive. The, the, the bounces and the spam are not there. Your inbox is clean. MailRoute has made this a daily reality for me and it can do for you. You don't have to install any hardware or software. You don't have to maintain any of that stuff. MailRoute does it all in the cloud. They receive your mail, sort it, and then pass it on to your mail server cleaned of all of that junk, all that bad stuff that you don't want to see. It's easy to set up. It's reliable. It's trusted by not just me, but the largest universities and corporations out there. If you're a desktop user, you'll find that the MailRoute user interface is super simple and effective. I always talk about this digest I get, which I find very entertaining. Uh, What subjects are spammers trying to send through? There are trends that happen. It's kind of hilarious. But uh, I check that to see if there are any false readings, which there almost never are. It's, It's maybe happened once in the last month. Uh, if I do find a, a good message in there, I click once and I can whitelist that person. They'll never be filtered again. And that, that mail is immediately delivered to my inbox. So it's super easy to use. And if you're an email administrator or an IT professional, they've built all the tools with you in mind. They even have an API for easy account management. Support for LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, mail bagging, outbound relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. So remove spam from your life for good. Go to mailroute.net slash upgrade. Mailroute.net slash upgrade for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So thank you to MailRoute for sponsoring the Mike Watches a Movie Vertical and for filtering my mail. So the Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Now, can you please... Um give a little bit of context to this movie. like Because it's it's one of those films that is a cult classic, right? It is a cult classic. Why is that the case? Like, Do you have any kind of feeling as to why The Princess Bride is a cult classic? So we talked about it in Incomparable Episode 25. Uh, I think one of the... So I was late to the, the Princess Bride. I went off to college and people were quoting lines from The Princess Bride and I had no idea what was going on. Um, and then I, you know, I didn't see the movie until I was maybe out of college even at that point. Um, so I think I think for some reason the this movie is particularly quotable. Um, I think the I think the heightened uh, you know it, it's the storybook element that the, these are tropes that we're used to seeing in fairy tales with a uh, knowing and kind of postmodern you know knowing spin. there's a comment 
commentary on this kind of story that's happening inside the story. Plus, it's got the framing device with Peter Falk and Fred Savage. So, you you know, you're commenting on it as a story while it's happening. Um, I, I think all of that is kind of mixed in there, that this is uh, this is um, very quotable. And I would say for the period in my life uh, when this came out, the reason that the, all the college students in my college were quoting it also is, you know, you're when you're when you're younger, um, this is the kind of movie that is both familiar in the sense that it is an old fashioned fairy tale and also, you know, beautifully uh, different in that it is winking at the whole thing. And that's clever. And I think especially when you're, uh, you know, high school, college age, you love that idea that somebody is taking this form that you've been seeing your entire life and is now playing with it and, and, and winking at it. So but if I had to pick one thing, it's that it's just just insanely quotable. So when I first started hearing people mention The Princess Bride kind of on the internet and on shows like yours, there was something in my brain that got it mixed up with the Anne Hathaway movie, The Princess Diaries. And I was very confused as to why all of these nerds enjoyed The Princess Diaries so much. Um, The Princess Diaries has a 6.2 on IMDb. uh, And... (laughs) It's about um, Mia Thermopolis has just found out that she is the heir to the apparent throne of Genovia. So it's uh, uh, like a regular American girl who finds out she's a princess, basically. It's, so I was very confused. Um, but then once I was able to to break the confusion, um, the interesting Anne thing Hathaway is... Anne Hathaway is not in The Princess Bride. She is not in The Princess Bride. Um, Julie Andrews, not in The Princess Bride. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Um it is interesting, though, that even though I have never seen this movie, it has snuck into my conscience. Like, I am aware of the references. Um, I, I am aware of Inconceivable. Uh, I am aware of Would You Like a Peanut? Uh, <laughs> you know, I am aware of these things. Uh, they have they have snuck in. And I always find that interesting when you can relate to the reference and can even make the reference without actually knowing the source material. So that that's one of those oh, interesting yeah. things that happens in. That's what happened to me in, in college culture. at first too. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's, uh, hello, my name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepared to die. Oh yeah, I know that <laughs> reference. I know it from other references, but not from the actual movie. But from the references, yeah. So I, I have to to make a one one brief aside to just right. to read verbatim from my notes, uh, and my notes say, "Oh my, Robin Wright." Yes. Uh, she is beautiful. Oh, yes. In this movie, she is just incredibly beautiful. I am only very familiar with her from uh, House of Cards. House of Cards, right, sure. Where, of course, she is a, also a beautiful lady, but but she's she's younger, uh, probably closer to my age uh, yeah. in, in The Princess uh, Bride. I was going to call mm-hmm. it Diaries. Uh, no. She is, she's very stunning, and she's kind of, in her look, the perfect look for a fairy tale princess. You know, it right. kind of it makes it makes perfect sense, right? And and as well, the way that the movie starts, I find to be very interesting because it starts off as like this idyllic romance story, right? And and it's it's very it's very well done. I, I like mm-hmm. that a lot because it's kind of like with uh, is it Car- How do you say Carrie? Carrie Elwes. That's it. Carrie Elwes and and Robin Wright are these two blonde, beautiful, blue eyed. You know, like oh sure, 
perfect fairy tale stars and it's like you know like soft focus lens you know they're like in love it's it's it starts off really well and i love how the the young boy is it fred savage right yeah he's just like is this a kissing book and i just think (laughs) so funny like the way i just really enjoyed the way that it started uh i have a real love for andre the giant just in in general uh i was i was a pro wrestling fan as a kid oh uh, and remember fondly watching Andre, um, you know, the biggest man in the world, you know, fighting yeah. Hulk Hogan. He, he apparently was given his lines phonetically for this because he doesn't, he didn't speak English very well at all. No, no, he's French. And, French, yeah. Yeah, and just not, never did speak English very yeah. well. But I, I would argue that, that it uh, enhances that character, that he's sort of this somewhat impenetrable, confusing giant man. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And they paint him as quite simple as well, you know, because because yeah. he's and like, sweet. Uh, yeah, which is which is great, uh, and I really like that because when uh, Inego says to you know says uh, right at the very end, he's like, uh, is it Fezic? Is that how you Fezic. say Fezic? Yep. Like you have finally done something right, like when they're making their escape, <laughs> right? Right. You know? Well, there's a, there's a nice moment where um, where they're uh, they're they're on the chase, and and he said. Uh, he he wants to fight. He wants to fight them, and he says, "No, no, hide behind a rock and throw and a boulder and throw rocks at them." Um, and he says, "My way is not very sporting." <laughs> he's like upset. He's like, "No, that's not because he's a good. He's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. Vizini is bad, but Fezzik is a very nice giant person." Mm-hmm. Um, like he's Andre in this role is so fantastically terrible. Like yeah. that's what's so good about him. It's endearing. Yeah. It's endearing. He is an endearing character and it is in part because he is not an actor and he's his lines are kind of uh, you know, muddled and uh and yet I think I think it works because of that. I think it makes you uh, love love that big that big lug. Yeah, I mean cuz he's cast because he's the closest you can get to a giant. To a giant. Yeah. Um I mean like he's 7 foot tall also and he suffers with gigantism, you know, so he kind of has mm-hmm. these larger than life features. Um, so, and he, so he's kind of perfect for the role that, that, that they're fitting. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the book, like the storytelling device, is when it would break to like the present day, mm-hmm. and then uh, the grandpa would, like the grandfather, uh, would start to read the story back, and you'd see the flashes of it happening. Mm-hmm. So like he would start to tell the story and it would yeah, be where his was narration. I? Yeah, where was I? And he'd start reading the parts and then start flashing around again. And I, I don't know if this is something that is intended, and I and I wonder how you feel about that. But you know, when when uh, the grandson complains about certain ways that the story's going, I had the feeling that his grandfather was changing the story. Ah, interesting. Because he's like, oh, but you know, such and they they shouldn't get away or, or whatever, and he'd be like, oh no, wait, just just let me continue. Because they seem to like at these points that the the story takes sh- sharp turns. Well, I, but the, what what goes against that is that um, there's a moment where he says, uh, you know, what happens to what happens to Prince Humperdinck? So, you know, how how does he how does he die in the end? And he says, no, he lives. He lives. He he gets away with it, and and the the son the grandson says, "Jesus, Grandpa, why are you reading this book to me?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I like that bit. I mm. like that. Yeah, um, the whole that whole commentary, the you know, stop with the kissing and all of that, and you know that that is a uh, yeah, it's a great. I think it's a great framing sequence to have them all you know commenting on on the story as they go. Like this is a fairy tale. We are listening to and watching a fairy tale as it happens. I think single handedly, the best scene in this movie is the whole. Um, the whole scene when you know Wesley, who is the Dread Pirate Roberts, is scaling the wall, and Inigo is waiting for him, oh. and their whole back and forth, and then the very civil conversation that they have about their lives, uh, and, and you know talking about how they got there, and then have the fantastic fight, um, which is mm-hmm. so well done, because there are so many parts of it where it's clearly you know it is uh, Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes, who yeah. Mandy Patinkin like. The guy from Homeland. I was like, oh my God, it's yeah. the guy from Homeland. Uh, that whole scene makes the movie. Like, the movie could scene. have the movie could have been so much worse than it was because overall, I will spoil it, overall, I, re- I really enjoyed this movie. Um, that is just so, it's such fantastic, just everything, comedy and just great storytelling. Like, the whole, it, it just worked so well for me. Um, I really, because it, fra- it frames those characters so well. You know, like they're full of honor and and like you know, they 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 will die for the for the cause. Right. And you and seem a good thing. man. I hate to kill you. You seem yeah. a good man. I hate to die. <laughs> and the uh, you get the double. I'm not left-handed. I'm not left-handed yep. either. <laughs> yeah, all, all of and then like you know, uh, one would knock the sword out of his hand, so he pick up the sword and knock this, and like no one would kill yep. each other at that point. Uh, and and I really love the line. There's not a lot of money in revenge. Yeah, I'm I'm in the revenge business. Like that is just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's uh, like a, one of my favorite lines in the movie is also uh, where they're talking about the different sword techniques, and and Mandy Patinkin says, "If he has studied his Agrippa, which I have, <laughs> so it's, it's a non segue, <laughs> which I have, okay, Mandy Patinkin, <laughs> angry Spaniard with a with a with a sword, and, and I like that he, you know, in the end, Carrie Elwes knocks him out. Right, he's he's not gonna." He's not going to kill him. This pirate that we don't know anything about, he's not going to kill Inigo. He's a, you know, he's a good guy. Right, so this is where this is where that leads to the a big question for me and and sure. please correct me if I've got something wrong here. So um Wesley knocks out Inigo. Mhm. Um uh he does the same to Fesic. He puts him in a sleeper hold. That yep. whole thing is hilarious cuz there's no way Wesley would have survived that. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's slammed against the rock. Crushed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which that's that's a great like that that I love all of that as well. But then sleep it, well and dream of large women. He says as he leaves Fezzik behind. That's be quotable. Good, good line. Good line. Um, <laughs> and then when it comes to Vizzini, he kills yes. him. Well, Vizzini really kills himself, but he is the worst. He is the worst of them, right? He's the instigator of this, and he he's telling them to kill. That's why you see him say, "Throw rocks at their heads and all of that, and don't be sporting about it. Just kill them." It's because Vizzini is he's arrogant. He he doesn't care if they die. He's just in it for the money, and then it's his own arrogance that kills him in the end because he he dies with his own his own poison, which is funny. Yeah, it's just. Look over there. What is that? It's I don't see anything. Very interest. It's just very interesting. <laughs> like uh, yeah, I get true. it because the other guys they're just like hired help. Yeah, right. They're they're they again. They're they're trying to make money. They're 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 in it. This is they're in it for the work. And they and you also get the sense that as as it goes, they're increasingly uncomfortable with 
with what Vizzini is trying to do, that they, this is not necessarily what they signed up for. And he's the instigator of it. So yeah, he ends up dying in the end. But even then, he doesn't end up dying at the hand of the man in black. He, uh, he ends up dying at his own hand. He's just outwitted by the man in black. Uh, yeah, I... Yeah, but he put poison. But yeah, he, so he was that's always going to kill oh, that, him. That's true. He did. He did put poison in in his cup. That's true. Yeah. He did. He did actually poison him, and he died. This is true. Like it wasn't I, like he was uh, in that the, the episode of Sherlock Sherlock where the pills right where it's like this right. game of of wits as to who's going to take. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like the, yeah. I think it's the second episode, and they're playing that game of wits as to who's going to who's going to take the pills because he just like you know. Wesley says that he built up an intolerance to the poison. Yeah, so he's gonna, they're both, both going to drink the poison, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He does. He kills him. He sort of. I mean, he set up that he sort of deserves it. It's a great. It's a great death. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line, and then he <laughs> dies. Uh, couldn't be as far from a Sicilian accent uh, as possible, which I, I loved. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Wallace Shawn being Wallace yeah. Shawn. He's no, incredible no voice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then uh, we kind of get to the point where then uh, Wesley is he's he's caught Buttercup and they're on their way and we're treated to one of the most ridiculous scenes I've ever seen in cinema, which at this point I am enjoying when they're tumbling down the hill. Oh, and the noises <laughs> they're making. Oh yeah, it's yeah. so. Er. <laughs> ah, ah, oh. And they show one part where, like, this the stunt double who's filling in for Buttercup takes a terrible turn at one point. Oh, yeah, like it looks really painful. Uh, so that that's kind of kind of beautifully ridiculous. And then, so there are some weird points in this movie, right? Where it kind of it took me out a couple of times. Like, so then when mm. they're in the well, uh, in the f- right after right after that, they get to the fire swamp and there's the like, big Muppet rodents. That's what right? that's what I'm going to talk about. And yeah. the incredibly violent fight between Wesley and one of the the giant rodents. That's where we see them he stabs the ROUS like multiple times with his sword, yeah. Yeah, and and he is bitten uh quite savagely <laughs> a few times as well, which is interesting. It's is just the movie kind of didn't it didn't stick to anything. Like mm. I felt like it it kept changing around a lot. But the whole time like I'm 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 entertained throughout it all. Uh, and I really like that this is such a weird and varied cast because then we're met by um, Mel Smith, who yes. is a, a British actor who plays mm-hmm. the character known as the Albino. The Albino. Mm-hmm. But Mel Smith is like, he's familiar to me because he is a very famous British comedy actor um, and drama actor. Like he's been lots and lots and lots of British TV. So it's just very peculiar to see some of the casting like it's just it's so out of left field a lot of a lot of it um and it's like i i never really there just didn't seem to be like a real kind of cohesion but not in a bad way it's just it's like i I kept being surprised by the faces that i was recognizing you know right um and then there's like the very uh peculiar pain machine the suction machine yes um, which is which is really weird, and then uh, Wesley is killed, and then they take him to the Miracle Worker. Mm-hmm. I loved all of that. Who who is it that plays the Miracle Worker? It's Billy Crystal. Yes, because I knew and I Carol Kane is his wife. Yeah, that whole scene is just so fantastic. It's very Woody Allen like. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre sort of like uh, just a comedy sketch scene all on its own, but it's great. The mir- at the Miracle Max shop. 
He's like, he's only, yeah, po- mostly dead is partially alive. <laughs> and Valerie, leave me alone. Because she's like, you're a liar. You can save him. And yeah, that's a funny bit. I, they, they did a, a, a retrospective on the Princess Bride in a magazine that I was reading last year. And Billy Crystal and Carol Kane were interviewed. And they said uh, they'd be up for a Princess Bride sequel since they could play the part their parts without makeup now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because they're very old characters, yes. aren't they? Like, yeah, sure, they're like, aged up they're, in that one. They're like anciently old. Like, yeah. That actual nobody really lives to kind mm-hmm. of old, because like, they're, they're like witches and wizards, I guess, something along that line. Right. And then we're treated to that. So Wesley is brought back to life, and just in just pure comedy. Saved by, saved by Inigo and Fezzik. Yes. And brought back to life. Yes, yes. Uh, how he cannot function correctly. Right, he's paralyzed, basically. And the way he moves his body around is just so <laughs> incredible. Like, you know, to move his arm, he, like, has to get momentum from his other shoulder to, mm-hmm. like, throw it around. And then the, the, the whole instigation of this uh, episode, the Holocaust Cloak, is brought yes. up. Yes. Yes, the, the list, listed among our list of assets is we also have a Holocaust. That's a that's a funny scene because they're like, well, there's, you know, what do we do? There's too many guys down there. And, and then, they, then he says, oh, well, if we have a Holocaust Cloak, then... And then they had to put Andre the Giant on the bonfire thing. and Yeah. I'm the Dread Pirate Roberts, he says. So, like, there's a, <laughs> there's a few things about this. So, one, like, I love the, the, the introduction of the Holocaust cloak is great. It's like, a, I liked it, so I took it. And <laughs> the guy said I could have it, um, which, is, which is how Vesic says that he has it. But then the, there is no explanation. So I looked this up as to why he could be set on fire. Uh, he's high up and also a giant. I don't know. <laughs> I, I looked it up, and apparently the hol- a Holocaust cloak is impervious to flame. Ah. Um, and I think it, I think that there is something Dungeons & Dragons related. Interesting. Because I, I found a Yahoo Answers article, um, and one of the points in here, where does it say? <laughs> I'm sure... Um, uh, here we go. Any who attack the wearer of the cloak must save versus magic or suffer 2d8 points of damage from the flames. And any weapon they strike with must make a saving throw or be damaged as well. There you go. Now, I and only that, know about that from your show. I, I would w- not have understood any of that. <laughs> but Total Party Killers prepared mm, me for the Holocaust good. cloak. Good. I'm glad to provide the service. So, so yeah, that the... Uh... It, it works in that they uh, they scare off the fear of the dread pirate Roberts combined with this horrible flaming giant thing moving toward them scares off most of the guards. And then the guy with the gate key says, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you mean this gate key here? <laughs> and he runs off and they get into the, uh, the, the castle for the last, the last momentous bit where you have to save the princess and stop the six fingered man. Who is Christopher Guest? Mm-hmm. More, more great actors mm-hmm. in this movie. Well, uh, that's a nice showdown where he can't move too, right? And the and the and the prince is there, and it's unclear whether he has any strength or not to to get up from the bed. But he talks the prince into giving up without a fight. Yeah, what is the line that he uses? Something about pain to the pain. To the pain, not to the death. Yeah, and right. it's this great kind of like rousing speech as to how he will make you know his life misery. He yeah, he'll cut him. he'll cut off all of his arms and legs and just and, leave uh, his ears. He's perfect. He, yes, ears. ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah, quotable. Um, and 
I really enjoyed this whole scene. There's a lot of action in it, and I I like um, Indigo's scene with his retribution. Mm-hmm. You know that that's that's a good scene, um, and it kind of you know it ends it ends nicely. Everybody's happy, uh, and the grandson ends up in having enjoyed the book, and then you get you know the payoff, the payoff as yeah. you wish, as you wish at the end. You know, saying that somehow in some sort of time, in some sort of like time traveling timeline, because of how the, could it be? <laughs> yeah, because it's hundreds of years yeah, later. Well. <laughs> oh, that grandpa! He says crazy stuff. I really enjoyed this movie. Good. I'm glad. Were the um, accents acceptable to you? Because you have there are some Americans doing British accents in this movie. Uh, it was... So I was confused by it a lot because I, I kind of couldn't understand where they were attempting to... <laughs> To have this movie set well, that's because Americans don't understand about regional British accents. It's just fairy tale Britain is where it's set. Well, there's just except no it's co- actually Florin. It's actually Florin and Gilder. So it's which are which are currencies. But uh, uh, you know, so theoretically that could be like in Italy. But it's just it's nowhere. But most of them, most people, uh, with some exceptions, are trying on uh, English accents to some degree, fake and uh, and not fake. So my 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 problem with it is there's no commitment like there's no no that nobody will commit to a certain so they will not get everybody to commit to a certain accent right because you have right. a Spanish guy you have a French guy yeah you have Americans pretending to be English you have Americans that are just just don't even care and are just being American and yeah, saying like, they're Sicilian <laughs> yeah like well the, it's more like there are New Yorkers in this movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the Miracle Max and the and the uh, and and Vizzini are both sort of just doing New York accents, and 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 uh, Miracle Max's wife Valerie too. You know. So I had to, I had to, even though everybody's talking British, uh, well, the, a lot of the main characters are talking in British accents, and that's because it's medieval times. Many 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 medieval sure. time movies. Everybody has British accents. I don't know where this started, but it seems like something that that I've seen a bunch. I assumed that it was Italy because Florin sounds and Florin yeah. Gilles sounds Italian, and obviously you've got. Uh, Vicini, who's, who's Sicilian, like it just kind of made sense to me that it would be Italy. Yeah, it um, is made up though. I mean, the G- Gilder, yeah. Gilder is a it was a like Holy Roman Empire currency, and a florin was a I I think that was a an Italian currency, and they, they're named so florin and Gilder are just named for for uh, currencies. It's the Florence currency was the florin, so it's all made up. The the setting doesn't really give anything. No. That it kind of could be anywhere in the world. Lots of hills and a little medieval city, and yeah. yeah. But I, I enjoyed it. I, I really did enjoy I'm it. I'm glad my you go- did. My girlfriend didn't. Oh, I don't know what, why so- she. Oh. No, no reasons given. She just didn't think it was very entertaining. <laughs> that was kind of her. She just, she, just she hates me really, now. Probably. Uh, I don't know how she's going to feel after my next assignment. What's your next assignment, Mike? So I enjoyed this enough that I would like to to do it again, and we're going to do it again next week. Uh, and this is because basically I know that the Princess Bride is 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 kind of important to you. It's a movie that you enjoy. I, lo- I love it. Yeah, but there's a movie that is extremely important to you mm. uh, that that references are made, and I don't get them. And it's, yes. it's about time that I do, and that's Real Genius. Yes. So I'm going to watch Real Genius in between right. now and next week's episode, and we will do a second Mike Watches a Movie Vertical. This is okay. not going to be every week, by the way. Um, no. Maybe. Although we, we, may, we, may, we may, it may. It may recur. Yeah. Big, and I think it, 
I think there's a funness in it because you are uh, obviously a man uh, who very much enjoys movies. Uh, you know, the, the incomparable sure. shows that, of course. Um, and I, I also very much enjoy movies, but there's I have big gaping holes in my uh, in my movie history. Um, and I, I don't even want to tell you about some of them, or we'll be doing this forever. <laughs> And so I think, yeah, I think it might be fun. I think it might be fun. We do it at the end of the show, and people can, yep. can choose if they want to listen exactly. or not. So uh, I had one more one more thing note about the Princess Bride, just to say one yeah. of the reasons that I think it's interesting and relevant is that the director of this movie is Rob Reiner, and I think one of the reasons people um, are it's an interesting run of films for him because Rob Reiner's first seven films are all consensus. Uh, critically acclaimed movies. It wasn't until his eighth film that he made a bad movie. His first seven are all kind of great. So his first uh, feature was uh, this, and he was known as a sitcom actor. He was uh, Archie Bunker's uh, son on All in the Family. Uh, And then he made these movies. He made This is Spinal Tap. Have you seen This is Spinal Tap, Mike? No. Oh, Mike. Put it on the list. Uh, <laughs> then he made the forever. then he made the sure thing, which is an '80s romantic comedy, you know, teen sex comedy, but it's a really good one. Um, then he did Stand by Me. Have you seen Stand by Me, Mike? <clears throat> oh, Mike. Uh, then The Princess Bride. Then When Harry Met Sally. Then Misery, and A Few Good Men. Those were his first seven movies. They're all pretty good. Then he made North. Not good. <laughs> and since then, his, his he has not made very many good movies. But uh, those first seven are all pretty good, and you've probably not seen any of them except uh, Princess Bride. Let me let me look again. Have you seen a few I, good men? Misery no, when no. Harry met Sally. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. <sighs> anyway. Anyway, so a, a, a great run of movies, including This is Spinal Tap, which is also... This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally are all in my top 25, probably. So three three movies from one director is pretty outstanding, but he had a really good 1980s. Really good 1980s. I feel like the Mike Watches a Movie vertical could just be renamed the Jason is Disappointed in Mike vertical. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a subtitle. <laughs> Mike watches a movie. Jason is disappointed. <laughs> but uh, you know, we'll we'll you know we'll we'll get feedback from the listeners. I think putting it at the end is a good decision because people can just dump out if they don't want to listen to us talk about a movie. But uh, you know, there's a precedent for this. I I recall John Gruber and Dan Benjamin talking about Bond movies. Um, and if if something comes up that it turns out you haven't seen and you feel like you need to see it or I feel like you need to see it, then maybe we'll revisit this. So we will do na- Real Genius. Uh, we will talk about that because why yeah, cause, not? Because I want to watch it. I do want to watch it. Uh, I have to admit, I have listened to the entire episode of Defocus that you did. Ah. I am I am one of those people <laughs> who listens to podcasts about things they haven't seen or read. Yep, which probably Shame. helps with my being able to to get the pop culture references. <laughs> it's That's like prob- you've seen it. I know. Uh, so I I will I will I will watch it, but I don't. I kind of listen to it, but when you listen to those things, it doesn't necessarily all go in. I don't think, but I am I am excited to see uh, Real Genius. Okay, it's very eighties. Be prepared. Put on some leg warmers. I'll do what I can. Uh, I did. I didn't get a lot of the eighties, so this yeah. can be this can be my my eighties time. Mm. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Upgrade. If you want to find the show notes for this week, you can check your podcast application of choice or go to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 21. If you'd like to find Mr. Jason Snow on the internet, he is at sixcolors.com and, of course, the incomparable.com as well, or he is on Twitter. He is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. This show is a production of the glorious Relay.fm. You can find our other shows at Relay.fm. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Linda, Squarespace, Stamps.com, and MailRoute. And thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back next time. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.